war einer der jüngsten da im Studium, weil die zu der Zeit waren dann waren viele, die früh die bei der Marine waren mhm. und also auch als, als schon in, in der Offiziersrang und die hatten ja dann keinen Beruf und die haben dann dann ein Studium nochmal angefangen. What you're hearing this month is my father talking about his past. He just turned 89 a few days ago, and the older he and I get, the more I try to see my parents on a regular basis and make an attempt in getting to know them better. Hear what kind of experiences they had and which things they consider most valuable in life. It's funny. As they tell their life stories, I can't help but see certain parts of myself in their behavior and their response to specific situations. And so I always try to apply something that I've learned through this conversation to my own life and so to hopefully get a better understanding of who they really are besides a mother and a father. A lot of the time I tend to focus on the negative things I inherit from them. My father's big ears or my mother's neuroticism, for example. But is it really that simple? That I am basically just a 50-50 combination of these two people's DNA? How much of my own person am I? Or am I just an interpretation of two people put together, dropped into a different environment than the ones they grew up in, to eventually develop an individual personality, different from theirs, that I consider me? This is Going Meta episode 18, Family. My name is Per Seuring and I am your host. Wikipedia defines family as the following. In the context of human society, a family from Latin familia is a group of people related either by consanguinity, by recognized birth, or affinity, by marriage or other relationship. The purpose of families is to maintain the well-being of its members and of society. Ideally, families would offer predictability, structure and safety as members mature and participate in the community. In most societies, it is within families that children acquire socialization for a life outside the family. Additionally, as the basic unit for meeting the basic needs of its members, it provides a sense of boundaries for performing tasks in a safe environment, ideally builds a person into a functional adult, transmits culture, and ensures continuity of humankind with precedence of knowledge. Whereas the word itself was first recorded in the early 15th century, literally meaning servants of a household and thus also members of a household, the estate, property, the household, including relatives and servants. Family is an abstract noun formed from the word familus, meaning servant or slave, which is of unknown origin. So as you can already see, family is quite a complex topic and has to serve a lot of purposes. A thing I found out during research for this episode is that the quality of sibling relationships is one of the most important predictors of mental health in old age, according to the American Journal of Psychiatry. Research shows that people who are emotionally close to their siblings have higher life satisfaction and lower rates of depression later in life. In times of stress or trauma, siblings can provide essential emotional and monetary support. But before we dive any deeper into the topic, let me state a small disclaimer. 
In the beginning of this episode, things will become quite scientific, because I talk a lot about genetics and biology. Don't let this deter you from listening to the episode, though. Through this observation, I think you will be able to understand the concept of family better, and the way in which we are influenced by our parents and how we might eventually influence our children when we decide to start a family on our own. Anyhow, you might be familiar with the nature versus nurture debate, which is one of the oldest philosophical issues within psychology. So what exactly is it all about? So for one, nature refers to all of the genes and hereditary factors that influence who we are from our physical appearance to our personality characteristics. And nurture refers to all the environmental variables that impact who we are, including our early childhood experiences, how we were raised, our social relationships and our surrounding culture. Today, most experts recognize that both factors play a critical role. Not only that, but they also realize that nature and nurture interact in important ways all through our life. Some philosophers such as Plato and Descartes suggested that certain things are inborn, or that they occur naturally regardless of environmental influences. Nativists take the position that all or most behaviors and characteristics are the results of inheritance. So advocates of this point of view believe that all of our characteristics and behaviors are the result of evolution. Genetic traits handed down from parents influence the individual differences that make each person unique. Other well-known thinkers, such as John Locke, believed in what is known as tabula rasa, which suggests that the mind begins as a blank slate. According to this notion, Everything that we are and all of our knowledge is determined by our experience. Then there also are empiricists. They take the position that all or most behaviors and characteristics result from learning. Behaviorism is a good example of a theory rooted in empiricism. The behaviorists believe that all actions and behaviors are the results of conditioning. Theorists such as John B. Watson believed that people could be trained to do and become anything, regardless of their genetic background. So for example, when a person achieves tremendous academic success, did they do so because they are genetically predisposed to be successful, or is it a result of an enriched environment? If a man abuses his wife and kids, is it because he was born with violent tendencies, or is it something he learned by observing his own parents' behavior? Something I find quite fascinating is the example of a nativist theory within psychology of Chomsky's concept of a language acquisition device. According to this theory, all children are born with an instinctive mental capacity that allows them to both learn and produce every language. What researchers do know is that the interaction between heredity and environment is often the most important factor of all. Kevin Davies of PBS's NOVA described one fascinating example of this phenomenon. So perfect pitch is the ability to detect the pitch of a musical tone without any reference. Researchers have found that this ability tends to run in families and believe that it might be tied to a single gene. However, they've also discovered that possessing the gene alone is not enough to develop this ability. Instead, musical training during early childhood is necessary to allow this inherited ability to manifest itself. 
Now, the question I want to examine further is whether how we act is affected by the genes we carry, so the nature side of the debate. There is a standpoint of evolutionary psychology and behavior geneticists which concluded that genetics play a big role in personality, accounting for about half of the differences in personality test results and even more of the difference in IQ scores. Apart from these scientific findings, researchers were impressed by many obvious similarities between twins when they were reunited for the first time after being separated from birth. Many of the pairs dressed similarly or had the same haircut or glasses. They described remarkable similarities in hobbies and interests. One pair reported that they were the only ones in their neighborhood to construct a circular bench around a tree in their backyard. Striking as such stories are, they remain mere anecdotes and have no scientific value. The main problem is that there is confirmation bias. So if a pair of twins is wearing the same baseball hat, we tend to interpret this as a wonderful example of genetic control over the minutiae of behavior. If a pair shows up wearing different hats, however, we ignore that difference but instead register some similarities such as both twins wearing a black shirt. Although it is hard to deny genetic influences on human behavior, anyone who tries to explain what a person does in terms of simple biochemical differences is likely to be disappointed. Personality psychologists recognize that gene effects are difficult to separate from environmental influences. Children growing up in the same home experience that environment very differently because they have distinct temperaments, are treated differently by parents and siblings and pursue different interests with different companions. So there's little doubt that how we act is affected by genes in fairly generalized ways. Some individuals are born with a propensity to be outgoing, to be happy, emotionally reactive, sociable, creative or intelligent. Yet it seems we do not have a good understanding of any of the relevant biochemical mechanisms. Now to make things even more confusing, let me introduce you to the idea of epigenetics. So epigenetics basically means above genetics. And in principle it goes this way. An epigenome doesn't change DNA, but decides how much or whether some genes are expressed in different cells in your body. Epigenetics looks at what happens to your genes over the course of your life and whether those changes could be passed down to your children or even your grandchildren. So think about it this way. DNA is the hardware and the epigenome is the software telling the hardware what to do. And in fact the epigenome can change based on a lot of environmental factors like what we do, what we eat, how stressed out we are and whether we smoke or not. Scientists thought the epigenome wasn't passed on to our children. And in fact, a lot, even most of the epigenetic information from a parent is stripped off of the embryo's genome in the first few days and fresh ones are created. However, some of these figurative tags get stuck on the genome and are passed down from generation to generation. So basically your grandmother was making dietary decisions that affect you today. This whole idea was sparked in the 1980s in Norrbotten, Sweden. In the 1800s, people living there were completely cut off from the rest of the world. So if they didn't have a good crop year, people basically died. So sometimes they starved, but sometimes they had huge bountiful years of plenty and stuffed their faces with all the food they could get their hands on. And the interesting thing is that the starving people died an average of six years sooner than the ones that got enough food 
And here's the kicker, so that their kids and their kids' kids. Think about it this way. Right now you are making decisions that are going to affect people who are alive long after you were dead. That is in the case you're planning to reproduce, of course. But nonetheless, it's quite mind-blowing. And in fact, with this finding of the concept of epigenetics came such ideas as the criminalization of bad mothers. So let me tell you the story of Amanda Kimbrough, who got arrested following the death of her third child, Timmy Jr. Born premature at 25 weeks on April 29, 2008, Timmy Jr. weighed 2 pounds, 1 ounce and lived only 19 minutes. When Kimbrough tested positive for methamphetamine, her two daughters were swiftly removed from her custody and for 90 days she was allowed only supervised visits. Social services mandated parenting classes and drug treatment. That would have been a typical response in most places, but Alabama is different. Six months after Timmy Jr.'s death, the district attorney in Colbert County charged Kimbrough with chemical endangerment of a child a class A felony because the infant died that carries a mandatory sentence of 10 years to life. She turned herself in and bail was set at $250,000. At the trial, the state completed its case in two days. On the advice of a lawyer, Kimbrough then pleaded guilty and received the minimum sentence of 10 years. Now this case attracted the interests of groups like Planned Parenthood the ACLU and the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, who all maintain that her conviction sets a dangerous precedent. Emma Ketteringham, the Director of Legal Advocacy at the National Advocates for Pregnant Women, a New York-based reproductive justice group, argues that applying Alabama's chemical endangerment law to pregnant women violates constitutional guarantees of liberty, privacy, equality, due process and freedom from cruel and unusual punishment. There have been approximately 60 chemical endangerment prosecutions of new mothers in Alabama since 2006, the year the statute was enacted. Originally created to protect children from potentially explosive meth labs, Alabama's chemical endangerment law prohibits a responsible person from exposing a child to an environment in which he or she knowingly, recklessly or intentionally causes or permits a child to be exposed to, to ingest or inhale, or to have contact with a controlled substance, chemical substance or drug paraphernalia. So there are basically two standpoints on this issue. One is by aforementioned Emma Ketteringham, who is worried that we're heading toward this Margaret Edward-like society. She says, the idea that the state needs to threaten and punish women so that they do the right thing during pregnancy is appalling. Everyone talks about the personhood of the fetus, but what's really at stake is the personhood of women. It starts with the use of an illegal drug, but what happens as a consequence of that precedent is that everything a woman does while she's pregnant becomes subject to state regulation. And on the other hand, we have the viewpoint that a fetus is another human being just like we are, says Clay Schofield, the state senator of Alabama. I look at the tens of millions of good mothers who make the right decisions. My mother, for instance, smoked forever. The day she found out she was pregnant with me, she put down her cigarettes for the last time. If we turn our back on this, we say to all these good mothers who have made good decisions that it's meaningless to society to be a good mother or a good father. As you can see, it really is a highly controversial topic, 
that raises a lot of ethical and judicial questions, but nonetheless shows us what deeper levels parenthood can have, despite just being a way to pass on our genes. Now let me continue on with the nurture side of things. Researching for this episode, I came across an article with a weird sounding title of Extra Licking Makes for Relaxed Rats. It is the story of an experiment done in 1957 by psychiatrist Seymour Levine, which showed that baby rats that had been taken away from their mother for 15 minutes each day grew up to be less nervous and make lower amounts of stress hormone. He guessed that it was not the human handling, but the extra licking and grooming the pups received when returned to their anxious mothers that destined the pups for greater tranquility. When put in a stressful situation such as being crammed into a small plastic box, the pups who got more licking and grooming were more relaxed. These rats also produced about half as much glucocorticoid and, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing this correctly, adrenocorticotropic hormone. Hormones that normally increase pulse and circulation rate in response to stressful situations. The reason that researchers discovered was that these rats had developed more brain receptors for glucocorticoid, which provide a feedback mechanism that helps shut down excess hormone production. So the study takes what was mostly clinical lore and really shows a strong biological basis and experimental proof of these effects, says Myron Hoffer, a developmental psychobiologist at the Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons in New York City. Other neuroscientists say that these findings of the study emphasize the importance of an infant's environment and reveal how the brain chemistry that makes for a relaxed adult might develop. This all reminded me of the still face experiment I read a while ago. The still face experiment is a powerful study which shows our need for connection from very early in life. This experiment was developed by Dr. Ed Tronick in the 1970s. The still face experiment gives an insight into how parents' reactions can affect the emotional development of a baby. Early in our lives we were learning about other people's reactions and how our behavior can affect others. This experiment gives us insight into what it is like when connection does not occur. So this experiment involves a baby and a parent, in this case the mother, sitting facing each other. The mother starts by playing with her baby, smiling at them and talking to them. The mother then turns away. The next step is that the mother shows a still face or a lack of responsiveness to her baby for two minutes. After the still face portion of the experiment, there is a repair when the mother returns to normal and returns to playing with and talking to her baby. The interesting part of this experiment is not the actions of the mother, but rather the reaction of her baby. And let me note real quick that I would highly recommend you watch this on YouTube. Just search for still face experiment to really see what an immense reaction the baby actually has. So you start by seeing a smiling happy baby who is engaging with her mother. The baby is making movements and sounds to communicate with her mother and responding to her mother's interactions with her. Once the still face portion of the experiment begins, the baby at first looks confused. She attempts to use all of her abilities to initiate a response from her mother. Babies are of course limited in the types of sounds and movements they can do, and you see the baby in this video using a range of ways to try to get her mother's attention. She looks around the room, she tries smiling, then pointing. As her attempts to connect continue to be ignored by her mother, 
you see her start to show distress and frustration. She begins crying and then screeching. Babies in this experiment often lose postural control. Their central nervous system becomes so overwhelmed that they physically collapse. Towards the end of the experiment, the baby becomes withdrawn and hopeless, no longer attempting to get her mother's attention. After the still-faced portion of the experiment, when the mother returns to interacting with the baby, you can see the joyfulness of the reunion and the relief is clear. The baby is quickly able to regulate its emotions once the mother is present again and play resumes easily. And one important note, this experiment was also recreated with fathers and had the same result. So it seems that having a non-responsive parent is not a problem if it occurs in short doses. However, if it occurs over long periods, it can have a detrimental impact on the baby's development. The still face demonstrates how vulnerable we all are to the emotional or non-emotional reactions of the people we are close to. It demonstrates how babies who are just learning about the relational world try to achieve connection. Also, research has shown that if the still face occurs over a long period, so in case of children who have parents who are not responsive to their needs, have more trouble trusting others, relating to others, and regulating their emotions. This experiment made me think of a quote by Frederick Douglass, a former slave turning influential abolitionist and writer, who said that it is easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. A book on that topic which I read recently and which now has a place in my list of all-time favorite books is I Don't Want to Talk About It by Terence Reel. The focus of this clear, compelling book by the Massachusetts family psychotherapist who specializes in working with dysfunctional men is Hidden Male Depression. Because our culture socializes boys to mask feelings of vulnerability, he says they bury deep within themselves damaging childhood trauma and its ensuing depressive effects when they become men. The book starts out with an illustration of the toxic legacy that is passed often for generations from father to son with each chapter adding another piece to the complex face. The lucent exposition of ideas is made more vivid through dramatizing. Real uses composite cases, so no actual person is depicted except the author himself. One of the most arresting aspects of the book is the autobiographical thread that he weaves throughout. Real's central concern is what he calls covert depression, a pain-filled, inchoate state that may or may not eventually erupt into overt depression. Overt meaning a depression with classic symptoms of depressive disorders, such as feelings of hopelessness, helplessness and despair. Whereas covert depression is not about feeling bad, so much as about losing the capacity to feel at all and living in a state of numbness, additionally turning to addictions with drugs, alcohol, sex or with an attempt to mask, get relief or hide from the pain of depression. So especially if you're a man or if you're a woman trying to understand men better, I would highly, highly recommend this book. It really opened my eyes and showed me a completely new perspective on the whole topic. Okay, moving on. We learned that nature and nurture both play a role in how you will develop as a person. Another notion I want to examine though is the idea of the inner family and the act of parenting yourself. There is the idea that every one of us has four internal life forces that are interacting with each other and influencing our way to be with ourselves and with the world. 
these forces can be in harmonious or disharmonious relationship with one another, causing us to feel connected with our deepest and true self or to feel overwhelmed from their constant inner dialogue, the inner family archetype. The term archetype is a concept of Swiss psychologist Carl Jung, coined to describe an idealized and prototypical person, concept or object. So in a nutshell, archetypes can be thought of as the general idea our mind conjures when thinking about any of the above. For instance, if someone asks you to visualize an object such as a car, the first image that comes to mind could be considered your archetype of a car. According to Jung, these archetypes reside in our unconscious minds, not just as pictures, but as ideals for how people behave too. There are four basic archetypal energies that represent family members. These ideals can help us understand the closest people in our lives, as well as our own identity or role in others' lives. There are the father, the mother, the boy child and girl child. It is important to recognize that each archetype has positive and negative aspects. For instance, a loving positive mother archetype nurtures, teaches and guides with unconditional love whereas a negative mother archetype is controlling and abandoning or even aloof. I won't go into detail what the characteristics of each of this archetype are, because that would probably take too long and would bore you eventually. But I will link to a website in the show notes where you can read more about them if you're interested. Now it really gets interesting though when we extend this concept to understand others surrounding us. Broadly speaking, the archetypal energy of a person can be seen as a guide for what they have in their lives and or what is lacking. For instance, a teenage boy that is afraid to participate in school sports and has trouble test taking may be responding to negative archetypal father energy. A positive father archetype is supportive and protective, but a negative archetype seeks to control through harsh criticism. It's no wonder that a boy exhibits shyness and lack of engagement when his father presents major negative archetype energy. Generally, neither parent is black or white with their archetypal energy aspects. There is a significant amount of both negative and positive qualities. It should come as no surprise that meaningful mirroring between parent and child of positive energies is key to success later in life. For instance, Jung discusses the idea that the good enough mother archetype tends to produce an adult that can better negotiate their relationships. Why? Because at an early age, the child that received that positive archetypal mother energy learned to trust that his her needs would be met eventually, if not instantly. This allows the child to learn trust. By trusting others, we can form strong, loving bonds of mutual support. Again, coming back to the still face experiment. As to be expected, there can be problems when a child is not receiving enough of the positive archetypal energies from a parent. When we try to understand why some young men and women commit violent crimes, vandalize or show self-hatred, we ought to look to the archetypal energies affecting them. Perhaps the problem is not that one or more parents in a troubled child's life may be mirroring negative traits, they could be mirroring nothing at all. They may be emotionally or literally absent. In that case, what are we as a society to do? One suggestion is to consider community interaction. If a parent is unable or unwilling to provide positive archetypal energy, it is important to offer this through other means. A supportive relative such as a loving aunt or uncle, a teacher mentor or even a community center that can provide needed direction and good role modeling and youth mentoring. 
And what about the idea of parenting yourself? A topic the School of Life, a global organization helping people to lead more fulfilled lives, observed quite well in one of their video essays. They summarized it as follows. How our parents behaved will have laid down a template in our minds. We cannot change the parents we had. But there is always an option in later life to learn to care for ourselves in new and perhaps better ways. In other words, there are opportunities to learn how to reparent ourselves. To do that, we should comfort ourselves at moments of difficulty with imagination and kindness, rather than expecting external sources to fulfill these desires. We can also encourage ourselves in the face of anxiety and loss and reassure fragile parts of us by drawing upon our own experience. Now this is an idea I find quite comforting and encouraging. Also taking away the pressure we so often put on our parents and the people raising or having raised us. It's not something I wish upon somebody, because of course it is challenging and doesn't always seem possible to live up to, but it's at least something good to know and something that equips our psyches with more stability and self-reliance. At least that's what I think. Now lastly, besides all that, let me make an attempt at trying to formulate what the ideal relationship with our family, especially your parents, should look like. Sigmund Freud said, no one could be a man unless his father had died. And Carl Jung said, yes, but that death can take place symbolically. One of the times in your life when you actually realize that you're an individual is when you go and ask your parents something and you realize that they actually don't know any more about what you should do than you do. And that sucks, of course. Also, just because you're not a kid anymore doesn't mean that there won't be any challenges in your relationship with your aging parents. Family is family and there's always opportunity for conflict as well as growth. I think relying on your parents' judgment is immature. Letting your father's or mother's judgment rule over you is not healthy. You hide behind the assumption that they know everything. By giving them the power to judge over you, you give away your independence of being a self-relying adult. Becoming an adult is realizing that your parents are just as clueless as you. And this of course means giving up security. It means being the only one to blame for unfortunate things that happen to you. But it also means being responsible for the fortunate things that happen to you. You are the only one that is able to figure out where you should go. Only you can sort yourself out. Every person needs to do that for themselves. Considering your parents' wisdom and taking their advice into account when making a decision is another thing and makes sense. But depending your emotional well-being on the judgment of other people is nothing other than unconsciousness. While researching for this episode, I also found another approach to the relationship with your parents, which came from Chinese philosopher Confucius. He wrote that we should treat our parents with reverence. He had very strict ideas about how we should behave towards our parents. He believed that we should obey them when we are young, care for them when they are old, mourn at length when they die and make sacrifices in their memory thereafter. In serving his parents, a son may remonstrate with them, but gently said. When he sees that they do not incline to follow his advice, he shows an increased degree of reverence, but does not abandon his purpose, and should they punish him, he does not allow himself to murmur. He even said that we should not travel far away while our parents are alive, and should cover for their crimes. This attitude is known as filial piety. 
Now this sounds strange in the modern age, especially in our western culture, when many of us leave our parents' homes as teenagers and rarely return to visit. We may even see our parents as strangers, arbitrarily thrust upon us by fate. After all, our parents are so out of touch, so pitifully human in their shortcomings, so difficult, so judgmental, and they have such bad taste in music. Yet Confucius recognized that in many ways more life begins in the family. We cannot truly be caring, wise, grateful and conscientious unless we remember mom's birthday. Or to summarize all of this with something C.S. Lewis wrote, the little boy chose security, the grown-up man chose suffering. A thing I realized in myself, and I think this is something a lot of you can identify with, that from a certain point on in my life, I felt the need to wanting to change my parents. I found a lot of their behavior irritating and not as the ideal way to live their lives. Although I am younger than them, not in the same position as them and don't have as much life experience, somehow I thought that I know better what's best for them. And so I had to think of a quote by Anthony DeMello, who wrote, The cause of my irritation is not in the person, but in me. As I talked about the process of becoming an adult and individual, a big part of it is realizing that your parents have flaws just like you do. They are human and are going through their own struggles. And just because of that fact and that their behavior might not be in line with your ideals and values, doesn't mean you should abandon them or disregard your relationship with them. As you might know by now, I am a huge fan of Stoic philosophy and of course, there can't be an episode of Going Matter without a Marcus Aurelius quote. Because it turns out, he wrote something that fits really well on that regard. I quote, As you move forward along the path of reason, people will stand in your way. They will never be able to keep you from doing what's sound, so don't let them knock out your goodwill for them. Keep a steady watch on both fronts, not only for well-based judgments and actions, but also for gentleness with those who would obstruct our path or create other difficulties. For getting angry is also a weakness, just as much as abandoning the task of surrendering under panic. For doing either is an equal desertion, the one by shrinking back and the other by estrangement from family and friend." End quote. At the end of the day, there are a number of things we can be grateful for that our parents gave to us. Again taking from the School of Life, they wrote a short essay on what we owe to the people who loved us in childhood. These things are endurance, that in moments of tragedy in our lives, they calmed us down and told us that everything would be alright, and the answers to our questions would eventually emerge. Self-love, lending us a sense that we were of value to them and therefore could one day be to ourselves as well. Another thing is forgiveness. So whenever we did something wrong, they came up with reason that cast our misdeeds in a generous light. They taught us about mercy towards others and ourselves. They taught us patience, the art of waiting until the good could emerge, sparing us the need to panic or bluster our way through life. And lastly, we may thank them for repair. There were some very bad scenes, they said nasty things and we did too. We felt we hated them a lot, but they stuck around. They took the anger and thereby taught us about repair. How things can go very wrong and yet can be fixed how resilient people can be, how many second chances there are when love is involved. Maybe your parents didn't supply you perfectly with all those characteristics. 
Maybe you learned some of them from other people, but nonetheless, all these people turned you into the person you are today. Perfectly fine the way you are, even with or especially because of all the flaws and weaknesses that still remain part of your character. For this month's episode, the question to my listeners was, if you could change anything about the way you were raised, what would it be? I was really excited about this one to hopefully learn something new about my close friends, but unfortunately I only got one answer from a friend. I can only speculate, but my assumption is that this question was too personal and takes too much time to think about for people answering it. It potentially could open up memories of childhood trauma most people don't want to deal with. The funny or maybe sad thing is that this one answer actually reveals such a story. For my friend, the thing he would change about the way he and his older brother was raised was to be raised in an environment without any physical violence. For example, as he was six or seven years old, they played hide and seek in their home and he hid in the bathroom where he accidentally stepped on a door stopper and broke it. He knew he couldn't tell his parents because he would be punished physically for it. So his father forced his brother and him to kneel on the bathroom floor for several hours until someone told him the truth. And as sad as the story was and as shocking it was for me to hear it, since I had no idea he had to endure such cruelties during his childhood, him dealing with these experiences is a huge step in healing and working on his own behavior. I am incredibly grateful to him for sharing this information with me and I gotta say that now I feel a lot closer to him. For a long time my mother had this kind of cheesy magnet on her refrigerator saying friends are the family that we choose for ourselves. And now being in that situation I had to think of it and actually feel it resonate with me. It's like that Stephen King quote from it. Maybe there aren't any such things as good friends or bad friends. Maybe there are just friends, people who stand by you when you hurt and you help you feel not so lonely. Maybe they're always worth being scared for and hoping for and living for. Maybe worth dying for too, if that's what has to be. No good friends, no bad friends. Only people you want need to be with people who build their houses in your heart. So to close off this month's episode, let me remind you as always that I also have a corresponding newsletter to this podcast. If you subscribe to it, I will give you a recommendation for a book related to the topic, a quote to ponder over and my favorite part, I will ask my subscribers a question in relation to the topic of the upcoming episode and will then incorporate these answers when writing the new episode. You can subscribe to it on my website which is per-seuring.de that is P-E-R hyphen S-E-U-R-I-N-G dot D-E. There you will also find a donate button in the upper right corner leading you to my recently created Buy Me A Coffee page. Because making this podcast takes a lot of time and effort and besides that costs me some money to make sure that it gets distributed on all the streaming platforms like Apple iTunes and Spotify. Now my plan isn't to become the richest man alive by doing all this, but I think it would at least be nice if I could go out of making this podcast even. So feel free to donate whatever amount you consider sufficient to the button on my website. So whether you choose to become a supporter or not, as always, I thank you so much for taking the time to listen to my podcast and hope you will tune in to future episodes of Going Meta. If you haven't already, make sure you follow me on Instagram at going underscore meta to stay up to date on news and contents of this podcast. My name is Persoering, the host of this podcast, 
And for today's final words, let me leave you with a quote from Charlie Abbott. We all grow up with the weight of history on us. Our ancestors dwell in the attics of our brains, as they do in the spiraling chains of knowledge hidden in every cell of our bodies.